Hello, and welcome back again to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. Thanks again for joining me. And I've got a bit of a different episode this week that's suffused with the emotion and experience of my very recent past. I'll explain a little. Recently, I went to the memorial service for a friend's mother in my hometown. And what was incredible about the experience was how fitting a tribute it was to this person who played an outsized role in the larger community of high school kids of the 80s who congregated really around this house as the central focal point for the social life in New Haven, Connecticut, which encompassed, I don't know how many high schools, like the scene that I grew up in, in high school, wasn't a single high school scene like you would see in the movies. It wasn't Ridgemont, it wasn't Fast Times in New Haven High, for example. It was literally probably 10 or 15 different high schools from surrounding towns and the New Haven area. And they all cross-pollinated and hung out through largely something called the Educational Center for the Arts, which was an after-school program. Well, it was actually a school program. You got out of your regular school at something crazy like 10.30 or 11.30 in the morning. And you got bused to New Haven where you went to art school for music, dance, theater, writing, whatever your interest was. They had a program for it. And after the school day ended at the Educational Center for the Arts, people from all these other schools congregated outside ECA and would meet their friends who went to ECA. Now, of course, since it was the 80s, we played hacky sack, we smoked cigarettes, we drank coffee, and then we left to individual cliques and did whatever we were going to do. Now, in my immediate group of friends, that meant that we usually made a few stops after ECA. We would go to the coffee shop. In those days, you could smoke cigarettes inside. So I believe we would go to Conran's coffee shop inside the New Haven Mall, which was downtown. And we would probably annoyingly occupy some number of tables, smoke cigarettes, drink coffees, hang out. After that, we would go to our friend Chuck's house. And Chuck's parents had allowed him to have essentially the attic, the top of their home as his room. And his extremely tolerant parents, uh, I guess, subscribe to the pretty smart philosophy now that I'm a parent of Whatever they're going to be doing, I'm pretty sure I'd rather they do it in our own home rather than out on the streets. So we would go to Chuck's room and we would do the things that kids in the 80s after school who, let's say, weren't super fixated on their studies would do. I want to protect everyone's, uh, you know, I want to protect everyone's today life. So. We weren't doing anything hard. We were just expanding our consciousness and 
enhancing our appreciation for music because music, I realize, is what really played such an important role in this group of friends that for me played such an important role because prior to finding this group of friends, I was just kind of wayward. I didn't really have my people yet. So it wasn't until I met, as you can hear, you can listen to my episode about Pink Floyd live at Pompeii with my guests, Chris and Roy. Again, music is how I met those two friends. And that's what bonded us together initially and really changed my life. The friendship with those two guys was for me, this sense that I have arrived with my people. And now I can kind of finally find out who I really am, find out, you know, my true interests. Before that, I'd always kind of felt like I just never fit in anywhere. Partly because of my parents being divorced, my mom getting remarried, moving to various towns, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so we would go to Chuck's room, we would listen to music, all kinds of music, but really we would listen to Pink Floyd and Chuck, whose room it was, was the archive master, meaning he had archives of alternative comic books. He had heavy metal magazine, and he had tapes of Grateful Dead shows. And these tapes appealed to the part of me that already then was interested in minutiae, in subcultures, in things where you have to do the work to understand the full nature of the thing itself. And it didn't so much matter to me, and it doesn't so much matter to me what that thing is. I'm always interested. For example, last night I watched a really good documentary called The Godfathers of Hardcore. I'm not into hardcore music. I wasn't in the punk rock scene in the 80s. I wouldn't put on Agnostic Front which is the band that was profiled in this documentary. However, I'm fascinated by the history, the subculture, the place that this band occupies in the music firmament. I'm fascinated by how you can be a star in an act that by almost any other measure isn't a star act, but has this gravitas and this importance in a whole genre of music. And it has such an emotional connection with its fan base and with these two guys in the band who are profiled. So music and emotion, right? Now, when I went to this memorial service yesterday, it was a ton of people from this New Haven scene. And I was sitting there And it was a funny, moving, almost rollicking memorial in the sense that there were jokes that were told, there were songs sung, there were poems read. Uh, Her two sons were fantastic in eulogizing her. And for those of us who were in this scene in high school in the early 80s. And there was maybe, I don't know, 20 of us, 30 of us there. It was incredible. It was incredibly emotional because I hadn't been around that many of those people 
probably since the early 80s. And while I'm very much in touch with some of them regularly, I was struck by how it's the it's the people I am not close to in a way that somehow moved me. I don't know. I don't know how really to describe it, but it was this sense of having been a part of something, however tangentially, um, and and really still being here to partake in it. I had that sense too, because of my own personal history, my own awareness that, you know, I could very easily not be here with some different choices made along the way. And by the way, that's also part of my subset of this scene of friends in high school. That's one of the other things that we bonded together around um, and that some of us have had to come to terms with. Some of us didn't make it. Some of us lost that battle, uh, battle to drugs and alcohol. So I was very emotional and I was thinking about how grateful I was to have been even tangentially a part of this extended scene. And I had long planned to do this episode, but going yesterday, which was something I had not at all connected to this episode, I realized does connect to it because in those afternoons with six or seven or 10 of us in Chuck's room listening to music, And listening to The Grateful Dead, for me, is such a huge part of my life. And it's something that I've stayed with all these years. My God, 35 years later, (laughs) something crazy like that. And how that ties into this episode is, this summer, I've been going to some concerts. And the current iteration of the Grateful Dead, which is a huge topic I'm not going to try to cover in its entirety here. The concept here is how to listen to Dead and Company. That's my catchy title under which I'm trying to slip in a little of the medicine here of some of the things I've been fascinated about as I've gone to four concerts over this Dead and Company tour, which is billed as the final tour of Dead and Company. Now, I will give you a brief thumbnail sketch just to hopefully pique your curiosity. Because if you think about bands and you're interested in bands, it's fascinating that, you know, they rarely stay together in any original form. The ones that are still doing it, the Rolling Stones, U2, offshoots of the Grateful Dead, like Dead & Company has had three original members Now it's down to two original members. I'll give you a brief thumbnail of that as well. But, you know, The Grateful Dead, it's a 60-year history coming up on. If you're curious, I would recommend watching the Amazon, I think it's the Long Strange Trip docuseries. That's a pretty good overview of the things that you need to know. Now, many people are turned off at the concept of a jam band. To me, the Grateful Dead and Dead & Company are not, nor will they ever be, jam bands in quotes. The songs of the Grateful Dead, 
whether you're interested in the music or not, are part of the American song canon, particularly the songs of Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter. These songs will be played for hundreds of years. You don't have to take my word for it. You can take Bob Dylan's word for it. Because I've heard Bob Dylan say, when asked, whose songs will endure? You know, they're asking him about his own songs. But if you ever hear an interview with Dylan or read an interview with Dylan where he talks about this, some of the first people he'll mention will be Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter, the primary songwriting engine of The Grateful Dead. There's a secondary songwriting engine, which includes Bob Weir and John Barlow, John Perry Barlow. Those songs are essential too, but I don't think I'm playing favorites to say that the songs written by Hunter Garcia are something superlatively unique and unto themselves. Now, The Grateful Dead, very much a part of the 60s, a part of Haight-Ashbury, a part of uh, the acid tests, the drug culture, counterculture. It became this entity totally unique where three times a year it embarked on long, extensive tours of the United States and had a traveling carnival slash circus of deadheads following the band, living concert to concert, a, a subculture economy springing up around the band and its tours and its music, which still exists to this day. So t-shirts, bracelets, food, drugs, hats, everything that you could imagine is for sale in an offshoot to the concert environment, which is typically called Shakedown Street, which is the name of a song and an album. And this is where you go before the show and you can just stroll through and see everything. You can see every level of fandom from kind of scary, kind of sketchy to heartwarming and endearing. You can see multi-generational families now that are going to these Dead & Company shows. Anyway, again, I don't want to get into the weeds about the history of the band because it's, it's long, it's complex. But basically, Jerry Garcia died in 1995. And subsequent to his death, the typical period of figuring out how to, should we continue in one form or another, the business stuff that messily must take place when a founding member departs, all of that stuff took whatever it took, the years that it took to resolve. And in 2015, after a couple different touring entities made up of different collections of former members, the dead played a series of shows, um, which were for the 50th anniversary of the band <clears throat> and standing in for Jerry Garcia was Trey Anastasio of the band fish. Now going back to that thing I said about jam bands, I'm not a jam band guy. I literally don't 
listen to any of those types of bands, not because I dislike them or don't like the music, but for me, Grateful Dead music starts with the songs. And secondary to that is the playing of the songs live. That's kind of what we're into if we're into this band. Now, from what I've heard of other bands like Fish or Goose, um, I'm not so sure that the, the songs are the vehicle for the jams in those bands. But the songs don't have, to me, the type of classic songwriting that the Hunter Garcia songs have. And to me, that's a, a huge difference. Like Grateful Dead wrote songs that alongside pretty much only the Beatles and Bob Dylan in terms of pop songwriting will still be here in hundreds of years. Okay. Now I'm aware that not everyone is, is aware of that and is going to agree with that, but that's to me a fact if you look at the songs. So that is a, is a demarcation for me. Now in 2015, Trey Anastasio from the band Fish had a astronomically insurmountable musical task to accomplish. He had to basically learn this entire canon of songs. And there's a lot of songs, um, hundreds of songs, hundreds of things the band does and doesn't do within those songs. And so again, as someone who likes complicated, layered minutiae, even things like that um, appeal to me because you're watching something unfold in real time that's kind of impressively technical and emotional. And what he did was an incredible accomplishment. Now, after that, starting in 2016, this really strange thing happened, which is that John Mayer ends up in a offshoot of the Grateful Dead called Dead and Company. And joining him were the two drummers from the Grateful Dead, Mickey Hart and Bill Kreutzmann, and Bob Weir. Now, Bob Weir is fascinating in his own right. I've mentioned it before, but there's a great documentary about Bob Weir whose title tells you everything you need to know about Bob Weir. The title of the documentary is The Other One. And it's a double entendre because the Grateful Dead and Dead and Company play a song called The Other One. But for much of the Grateful Dead's history, Bob Weir was the other one when the one was Jerry Garcia. Because Jerry Garcia is a fascinating and singular musician uh, of all time. Like he had so much talent and was so unique that he's hard to describe and hard to contain. You can read the books, you can listen to the music, you can listen to the interviews. He's a voluble interview subject. Uh, great appearances on Letterman. Just Google some, you know, Jerry Garcia on David Letterman. He and Bob always did great, great bits there. He's got great comic timing with Letterman. <clears throat> um, so anyway, he's got big shoes to fill, basically. And the idea for Deadheads in 2016 that those shoes would be filled by John Mayer was 
a shocking piece of strange information that took a lot of processing because unless you were really, really paying attention, you probably thought of John Mayer, if you thought of him at all as a deadhead, as the pop songwriter John Mayer. The Your Body is a Wonderland John Mayer. But you may have missed the fact that John Mayer is a legacy act. He is someone who is going to make music over the entirety of his life in an evolving manner that both speaks to the times that he's playing in and also evolves kind of beyond where he is at any given point in time and evolves with the times and maybe ahead of the times. So it's easy to categorize him as many people did at the time and say like, what? That guy? Like, I think that the community, in quotes, was more willing to accept Trey Anastasio because Trey Anastasio is coming from a band that many deadheads after Jerry's death paid a lot of attention to or moved over to or followed. And that was a sensible sit-in in in a way. But crucially, Trey is not a rhythm and blues player predominantly. He's more of, I think, has more of a progressive bent. And John Mayer is a rhythm and blues creature. That's the basis of his playing. And his singing is also a critical importance for the Grateful Dead because you have songs that Jerry used to sing and in the iteration of uh, the Fare Thee Well shows, which were the 50th anniversary 2015 kind of this is it shows, they had Hornsby on stage, Bruce Hornsby, um, Phil Lesh, the bass player for the Grateful Dead, sang some songs. Bobby picked up a lot of the songs. Trey sang some songs as well, but that's really not Trey's forte, I would say. So it's funny now in 2023 when I think even the broader musical community, not community, the broader music fan accepts John Mayer as a legacy player, as someone whose chops are unrivaled, as someone who is the real deal, whether they like his music or not. I think he's he's achieved that position. So in 2016, you have this thing called Dead and Company, which is comprised, as I said, of the two original drummers, Bob Weir, and then John Mayer. Now, as I understand it, those four people form the business center of Dead and Company. I may be wrong about this. This is kind of things that I've read. I don't have any information here. But you may or may not know that bands are corporate entities. And if you're going to go out on the road and perform music, you form a corporate entity usually, which you are partners in, and though it could be equal partners or unequal partners, we don't know the particulars here. Um, And then the band was fleshed out, as again, as I understood it, with uh, some other players, bass player, Oteil Burbridge, and a keyboard player, Jeff Kimenti. And they started playing. They played shows. 
Now, I was on board with this from the get-go because my ear heard something that as a deadhead in the 80s and the 90s, it had never really heard because the reality is Jerry's playing and the playing of the band suffered through the later 80s and the early 90s as Jerry suffered with the addiction that would eventually I'm not going to say it took his life because ironically, he was actually in a sober living facility uh, when he passed away. He had finally accepted, again, that he needed to get clean in order to continue to live the life that he wanted to live. But he had put his body through so much that uh, I just think it it did not endure. So... When I heard Dead and Company in 2016, I remember trying to convince other deadheads to go with me to these shows. And they were like, nah. Now, some of that is that there were other less successful iterations of Grateful Dead bands that had taken out, you know, onto the road. And, and maybe people had kind of felt that this thing that they loved wasn't really being replicated in a way that caused them to need to go check it out. But I remember everyone that I took really had their head turned. And from 2016 to 2022, the band continued to tour and continued to figure itself out. Now, this is another thing that I'm interested in. Because what we're not doing is just going on the road, playing old Grateful Dead songs and getting on with it. On the one hand, that is what they're doing. But on the other hand... They're embarked on a journey, I guess a six-year journey, let's say to 2022, of figuring out how they do what they do and also figuring out what they don't do. So you have this journey of a band that over that time evolves. And what's remarkable to me is that Bob Weir transforms over this six-year journey himself, physically transforms. If I told you in 2012 or 2010 that Bob Weir in 2022 would have workout videos posted prior to concerts because he is in peak physical condition in his mid-70s after doing this for almost 60 years, you would you would not believe me. Um. This is a band that I think all members over the course of its history at one time or another have had issues with substance abuse or alcohol abuse. Phil Lesh, the bass player, who is not in this iteration of Dead & Company, but he had a liver transplant. The joke in Spinal Tap of the many drummers expiring is essentially lifted from the Grateful Dead's history with keyboard players, many of whom have died. Sadly, Um, and I think I've mentioned this before, you know, big time, heavy duty rock and roll acts like the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin or the Grateful Dead in its heyday, it cannot be, it's it's not pretty all the time, okay? What's going on, what it sucks up in its wake and what it kicks out and expels as it moves on can often be people's whole lives, 
and whether they live or die. I mean, there's many, many, many things written about people who, for example, join a Stones tour to do a photojournalistic uh, reportage and end up desperate heroin addicts clinging to life because it's, there's a dark side to the joy and the music. And what's amazing is that in the world we live in now, musically, in terms of the business of touring rock and roll acts, things have changed so much. I was watching some documentaries recently and guys were talking about being roadies in the touring rock and roll business in the 70s and the 80s. And they were just saying, it is, it is a business now. It is a profession. It is professionalized. You cannot do the things that you could do back then. And part of what happened, I think, and I heard Bob Weir say this in an early interview, uh, I think it was a CBS This Morning interview that he did with John Mayer so- shortly after the band was formed. And they asked him about what it was like playing with John Mayer. And he said, well, it's incredible standing next to a fire breather again. And what he meant by that was, Jerry was such an intense musical force. He could be, he both, through really no fault of his own, sucked all the charisma and attention to him, even as he tried at times to equally disperse it to the other members of the band during the playing I'm talking about. Everything kind of ran through Jerry, for better or for worse, musically. And I heard Mayer say in an interview early in Dead & Company history that he had been listening to a lot of live Grateful Dead music with Jerry. And he said, I never realized how busy Jerry was on stage. And man, I, that, that just blew my mind because I'd spent decades listening to the Grateful Dead. And it never really occurred to me either how busy Jerry Garcia was on stage. And what he means by that, I think, is that you could listen to Grateful Dead music from, say, the 70s, which many people consider the, the best playing era of the band, The Grateful Dead. And you can hear that Jerry's got a great voice, that his guitar playing is unique and is filled with personality. It's rambling all over the place. It's in search of, it's probing, it's asking questions, it's declaring statements, it's batting away things, even as it's welcoming other concepts and exploring them and running away with little rivulets of ideas as they are presented by the other players live on stage. And in addition to that, you know, he's singing, he's playing some rhythm to himself, he's playing leads, exploratory guitar solos. And it's a lot to do. It's a lot more than people do in a quote-unquote traditional rock and roll band. And so... And when Bob said, it's nice to stand next to a fire breather again, what he's saying is, finally, he's playing with a guitar player who's really, in many ways, the equal of Jerry Garcia, musically. And that's what we've been seeing from 2016 to 2022. 
and I'm just talking to 2022 because I want to talk about 2023 as a separate thing, because as you'll see, it is a separate thing. So watching John Mayer from 2016 to 2022 in Dead and Company, which again, he still has his own solo career at the same time, and some really incredible albums that even predate his involvement in Dead and Company. Uh, Born and Raised is a fantastic album of American song, Americana songwriting. And like Trey, having to learn all these songs, having to be essentially the front man for the Grateful Dead in the Fare Thee Well shows on the 50th anniversary in 2015, John Mayer has to figure this out musically. And what's, what's interesting to me is in the era that we live in now where acts communicate so directly with their fan base through social media. And even with someone like John Mayer, who at different parts of his life communicated everything about his life to everyone. He's a voluble talker, just like Jerry Garcia was. But just like Jerry Garcia, it occurred to me listening as I have to countless hours of Dead & Company music. But the truest voice that I think John Mayer speaks with is with his guitar playing, his guitar soloing, particularly in Dead & Company. Because the nature of the music creates, at times, in certain songs, platforms for exploration from which a experienced player who has a background of musical knowledge across multiple genres like jazz, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, can really reach the outer limits of their talent and their ability to listen and integrate something with a greater whole. And when I've seen Dead & Company live, what's remarkable is that the concert experience now is so different from what it was in the 80s musically in terms of the quality of the audio that you can feel and participate in as a fan. And I remember seeing the band a few years ago and thinking, wow, this is, this is heavy. Like, it's a big sound. You know, there's six people on stage. And when you listen to it after the fact, you know, on your headphones or you watch a show um, at home, live streamed, you, you can get a sense of it, but it's nothing like the sense you get being there in person. And even at a place like Madison Square Garden, you know, an arena or a summer tour shed like SPAC uh, up in Saratoga, New York, you know, when the band is moving together, it's a big entity, it's heavy but it's light on its feet and it's heavy in the sense that there's a very broad canvas for musical conversation. And I don't want to get in the weeds of improvisational music discussion because I know that can be a turnoff for people, but let me just say that what's been incredible over 2016 to 2022 is to watch this band figure itself out in real time without communicating to us, the fans, really, much of what's going on. And I'm also interested, as you know, 
in the fact that we live in a time where you basically know everything all the time. And this band, of all bands, the Grateful Dead, like I've read extensively, I've seen all the documentaries. I mean, the organization in its heyday in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, I mean, this was not a finely honed machine. This was a Rube Goldberg-like rattle trap apparatus that did not function according to the norms of business. And, and so the idea that now in 2016 to 2022, you have this remarkably airtight entity where what must be going on internally fascinating though it might be as these band members figure themselves out in real time is not something we're really privy to outside attending the concerts or listening to the music. And really that's how it should be. I mean, of course I want to know more, but I also realize that's kind of a democracy that I don't really need, you know, because as I said before, it's about the songs And after that, it's about the playing of the songs live. That's what the Grateful Dead music has always been about, which is different than other bands. And I realized as a heavy consumer of Dead & Company, because more so even than the Grateful Dead shows that I was able to attend in person from, say, 1984 to 1995, Really, neither I nor anyone else of my generation has ever seen the songs played as well as they're played in Dead & Company. That's just a fact. On a, on a given night, maybe, here or there. Uh, but unless you were attending Dead shows between 1971 and 1974 specifically, and maybe through 1977, you really didn't see the songs played as well as they're being played right now. I'm talking from a technical musical standpoint. And that's part of the charm of the Grateful Dead, that sometimes it could suck. (laughs) Sometimes it's, it's aiming for something and it's the attempt. It doesn't always arrive, as Mickey Hart is fond of saying. Um, It doesn't always achieve liftoff. Well, Dead and Company more often than not, and certainly almost every single night in this final tour of 2023 has achieved liftoff and then some. So... What occurred over this band's history was a growth as fans returned to the fold and experienced it for themselves as they had to. They had to go live in order to have their minds changed if they were of a mindset that could not accept John Mayer in The Grateful Dead. But again, if you've been paying attention to John Mayer's musical career, you've seen the chops well before 2016. His trio playing is sick, musically sick. I mean, the the level of musical ability between uh, the three members of this trio that he toured with is unparalleled. And the types of listening that are going on in the setups there that involved improvisational music is all part of why it works for him here. So from 2016 to 2022, I go to concerts of Dead & Company. 
But I also do a new thing that is now available because of technology, which is you can have the couch tour. The couch tour is because there are websites like nugs.tv. Now, nugs.tv is a website and a company that specializes in the live streaming in real time of concerts that maybe you're not able to go to. And this is another thing I'm fascinated by because I don't know the business of this, but I'm sure it's a business, right? I'm sure that the band makes additional income from people buying live streams of shows that they can't attend, just like they make revenue from concert tickets or whatever else. I would love to know how that works. It's so convenient and it makes so much sense to me that I'm I'm left wondering why every band doesn't do this for every tour. Now, I'm sure there's a counter argument that says, well, if you make it so easy for, it's like going to the movies, right? If you make it so easy for people just to stay home, they will. And if they do that, then the live experience suffers and there's a whole industry that collapses and we lose something fundamental. Maybe. But I mean, I can tell you that if Dead & Company is playing at the Gorge in Washington State, which they just finished a two-night stint at, I mean, I'm not flying from the East Coast to Washington State, but I am watching those shows on Nugs. And I'm watching those shows because I bought the whole tour on Nugs, which you can do. You can buy a live stream. I believe it's 8K now. It's at least 4K. It might be 8K. You can buy an 8K live stream with or without the ability to download the show afterwards and listen to it whenever you want to. You can always stream it, but you can also download it if you want. So I've done that for every tour since 2016. I'm sick that way. Now, I reached out to Nugs before I did this episode through a couple of channels, and I didn't hear back because I wanted to play something as an example of the type of active listening that I find fascinating about this type of music. But ironically, for the Grateful Dead, who have historically made every show available to anyone who wants to tape it or trade it, after they've played it, um, in the era we're living in, Nugs has the rights to these shows, I guess, and the best audio, the soundboard audio from these concerts isn't widely available. It's somewhat available, but it's not widely available in a manner that would allow me to feel good about excerpting it and playing it here. So I've had, I have a better solution Um, that involves some publicly released songs that Nugs will put out ahead of a show, or actually during a show, they'll play the first song or two from the first set and from the second set because a Grateful Dead show and a Dead & Company show involves two sets of music separated by a break. And what Nugs will do is they'll, for free, stream on YouTube the first couple songs to entice you to say, hey, that's pretty awesome. I'm definitely gonna let me sign up and and listen to the rest of the show or watch the rest of the show. And watching it is what's fascinating. Because remember I said before, they're not telling us all the stuff that goes on in a band, all the stuff that you like to read about if you read Hammer of the Gods from Zeppelin, who was pissed off at who, who did what. I mean, look, I'm interested in that stuff too. I'm not going to lie. But if you can't have any of that, and you probably shouldn't, it's like sugary cereal for breakfast. It's not really good for you, even though you'd probably consume several bowls of it if you could. Then what you're left with is deciphering what's going on on stage. 
to the extent that you can. Glances that players make to one another. Smiles, recognition, uh, people. If you play music at all with your friends, you know what I'm talking about, that playing music, I mean, anyone who jams with their friends amateurishly like I do, almost universally, you're going you're gonna to agree with this statement, which is that when you finish playing a song together, everyone laughs because they're having a really good time because playing music together is amazing. And it's really like nothing else that as humans we do in groups more than two, let's say, right? If you get together with four or six people and play music together, there's so much going on in that. And if you get six people of the caliber that are in Dead & Company playing music together, A, you almost never get that sort of ability to perform at that level and to be presented at the highest level. For them to tour in a manner that allows people with that type of gravitas as musicians, for it to make sense for them to do this together and to travel the country and play shows, because it takes a lot. And you got three members who are original members of the Grateful Dead who are in their 80s and their 70s. You try going on a rock tour when you're 74 years old, let alone 80 or 81, and not miss a show. It's extraordinary that up until, I think, 2022, it never had occurred to me how hard it would be to never miss a show as a touring musician. I just assumed in all the years I've followed the Grateful Dead's music and listened to their concerts and followed the tours and all the years that I watched all of the couch tours that I could from Dead & Company, it never once occurred to me how extraordinary it is that on any given night, the show isn't canceled or someone's missing because, I don't know, they got sick, they broke their arm, they twisted their knee, they blew out an ACL. That never happened. And until it started happening, it didn't even occur to me how extraordinary it really was. So when you think about the Rolling Stones doing what they're doing, when you think about Bob Dylan doing what he's doing, it's incredible. It's a calling. It's a higher art than just playing rock and roll music. And it takes a commitment that really you or I would not really be willing to do if you really thought about what it would take, how it would take you away from your life, from your family, from your children. And it's taking you away to do this for other people who may or may not even appreciate fully what it is you're doing for them and bringing them the music in this fashion. But you're doing it on a higher calling. And Dylan's talked about this himself. He views his never-ending tour as a calling. He's a troubadour. He connects it to wandering musicians playing and bringing joy or news to far-flung towns. You know, he, he sees the connection to that, to what he's doing. And because his music and his show now is so connected and rooted in American music of all sorts, it is doing that. And so Dead and Company in about 2021, 2022, one of the drummers, Bill Kreutzmann, started having some medical issues, which caused him to miss some shows, to play half a show. And a drummer named Jay Lane, who has played with Bob Weir in other iterations of Bob Weir's musical life for 
I don't know, 20 or 30 years, sat in, filled in, and, um, you know, everyone's concerned, like, is Billy okay? I mean, we're all aware these guys have been doing this for almost 60 years, okay? You try being in the Grateful Dead for 60 years and tell me what condition you're in physically. So, but again, we don't really know because there isn't this direct communication. Um, but what happened was that uh, it was announced that this tour in 2023 was going to be the last Dead and Company tour. And it wasn't, we weren't given a reason particularly other than, you know, things have a shelf life. Um, I can say that as a fan myself, coming out of the 2021 tour and into the 2022 tour, I was still interested. I was still going to shows. I was still watching the shows. But I did wonder if it had hit a plateau. You know, it kind of had gone through a six or seven year evolution and it had arrived in an amazing, incredible place. And it, and it was able to achieve that place every night that it was playing. But I was aware that I had been present and watched a arc that I was maybe not at the end of, but that it had arrived at a place that it took the previous six or seven years to arrive at. Let's put it that way. And I was also aware that there have been so many iterations of, of Grateful Dead music that nothing is the end. There's always some other version of it. And let's keep our eyes and arms open for what it might be. Now, this final tour was announced. And one of the fascinating things that it was going to include was a return to Barton Hall at Cornell University on the same day as a legendary Grateful Dead show of 1977, May 8th, 1977. This is regarded, I guess, widely as like, quote, the best Grateful Dead show ever played, end quote. I, I don't personally subscribe to that type of thinking when it comes to this music. It's a very, very, very good Grateful Dead show. I myself might point you to the Creamery Benefit show in Oregon of some years earlier, uh, I believe it's 73 or 74. Uh, that was released as uh, Sunshine Daydream, if you're looking for that show. To me, that's a... Also, that show was recorded, I think, on a 24-track professional recording deck, as not many dead shows of its era were. So that may have something to do with it. So anyway, the, the final tour is announced. They're going to do this amazing thing, which is return to Barton Hall. And about a week or two before... Uh, they were supposed to play a warm-up show at Jazz Fest in New Orleans, followed by the Barton Hall date, May 8th, 2023. Um, Dead and Company released this statement. I'm just going to read you the statement. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to engage in any conjecture here. There's a lot of poisonous conjecture online, of course. And I don't personally want to dabble in any of that stuff. I'm simply going to read what the statement said. 
Here's the article from Rolling Stone. Dead & Company announced that founding Grateful Dead drummer Bill Kreutzmann will not accompany them when they embark on what's been declared their final tour. Quote, Every day, things change. After many long discussions and some good old-fashioned soul-searching, we are letting you know that our brother Bill Kreutzmann will not be joining us on our final summer tour. Bill wants you to know that he is in good spirits, good health, and he is not retiring. This is the culmination of a shift in creative direction as we keep these songs alive and breathing in ways that we each feel is best to continue to honor the legacy of the Grateful Dead. The final tour will go on as planned with Bill's full endorsement and support. Now, as a piece of corporate public relations writing, that's pretty damn good. It says so much without really saying the one thing everyone's going to be left wanting to know after they read that, which is, what the hell's going on? What happened? Right? Previous shows, we were all aware, and statements from Bill himself told us after the fact that he had had medical issues which prevented him from participating or playing full shows. But pointedly, quote, Bill wants you to know that he is in good spirits, good health, and he is not retiring. Right? So it sort of points you away from what would be an easy statement that everyone would understand, which is, as you know, Bill has had some health challenges in the previous years, and he's not up to taking on this final tour. Jay Lane is going to sit in. Everybody would have just accepted that, and the outpouring of love for Bill would have been, and was anyway, incredible because he's beloved and he's a big part of the swing of the band. He's a big part of the sound of Dead & Company. And his playing in Dead & Company was something that I really keyed in on over the previous six or seven years of the band, by the way. You know, my interest in listening to this music has shifted around from time to time. But of course, it starts with Jerry Garcia. It started with Jerry Garcia and listening to what Jerry's doing. And then from there, it moved on to appreciation for Phil's bass playing, for Bobby's rhythm guitar playing, for Brent, the keyboard player's keyboard and harmony singing with Jerry. Um... And for the drummer, I mean, everything, right? But I really keyed in on Bill uh, during Dead and & Company and really just grew to really, really appreciate the swing in his drumming. And so this statement, of course, if it was designed to tamp down <laughs> a outpouring of what the hell's going on, it had completely the opposite reaction because everybody was left to throw about a ton of scenarios and I heard this and I heard that and all this stuff. It doesn't really matter. Um, all that matters is what happened, which is that weekend of Jazz Fest, Dead & Company played with Jay Lane on drums. Bill Kreutzman actually played a couple of shows with his band, Billy and the Kids, I think kind of signaling that he is in good spirits and good health and is not retiring, according as the statement says, right? Now, Bill Kreutzmann has not issued any comment on this after the fact. And this final tour has, has, has taken place without any additional information and without us, the fans, knowing really what happened. And again, we're not entitled to know that. That's not part of the deal here. 
every day things change. Like I read these kinds of corporate PR statements and I I actually put a lot of weight on every single word choice and comma because I think that they're polished and crafted. Again, ironic given that it's the Grateful Dead organization. I think people wondered, what is the shift in creative direction exactly? Because we've all been watching and listening to these shows and it's not like it's getting away from what the Grateful Dead was all about. So it's not as if it's, you know, all of a sudden we're playing uh, yacht rock versions of Grateful Dead songs and Bill's not interested in that. So we can speculate, we can wonder, but all that really matters is the tour kicked off. And fortunately for me, I was able to be present at the Barton Hall concert, which was certainly probably the greatest musical experience I'll ever have in seeing a band live because of the history, because of the community, because of the coming together of the fans of this music for what we now know is the final tour of this iteration of this band. And that has been true of the other shows that I've been able to attend in person. And it's certainly true of the shows that I've watched from the couch tour because the vibes are incredible. The vibes are undeniable. The audiences are huge and they are comprised of sometimes two or three generations of people. You've got grandparents, parents, and then kids attending these shows. Um, You've got the full specter of the humanity of the Grateful Dead scene. For better and for worse, you got the nitrous mafia selling balloons of nitrous after shows. That's a scourge on the Grateful Dead scene. But it's part of it. Um, It was this tour, because they play some baseball stadiums. They played Fenway, City Field. I was at both those stops. And I honed what I realized is the ideal way to experience a summer Dead & Company show, which is for the first set, because... I have a sickness and an addiction. I buy concert, I buy too many concert tickets, right? Um, sometimes I'm given one set of concert tickets as a gift by my loving wife. And then I had already bought some in another location <laughs> planning on going. And so I end up with tickets in two different spots for the same show. But what I realized is brilliant is if you get tickets at the baseball show, Just above the dugout, there's no one in front of you. There's just a fence, and then there's the floor area. And if you sit there for the first set, which takes place in the sunshine, because it's usually starting around 7, 7.30, for the first set of music, you can watch this sea of Grateful Dead humanity pass by you, because everyone on the floor basically passes by where where you're sitting. And the clothes, the adornment, the dancing, the people tripping out and spinning out and losing their minds, the kids, all this stuff, this parade of wonderful humanity assembled to appreciate this music just passes right in for you and it's fantastic. Then the second set, which after the set break, the sun has gone down, things change. That's when you can sit in the seats in the middle facing the stage for the full musical approach of what's going to happen in the second set. That that I realized through my own sickness of having multiple concert tickets is the ideal way to experience one of these shows. So anyway, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend four shows this summer. 
And each one was filled with incredibly powerful musical moments. And I was also able to share it with some great friends, particularly my friend Buck, who I go back to, you know, 84 and seeing dead shows in the 80s and the 90s with him. And we both survived. You know, we're here. We're clear-headed. We didn't get lost along the way. It was a long, strange trip, but we're still standing and we're able to appreciate this fully um, with, with clear minds and open hearts. And we did. Uh, we were able to see two shows together, Barton Hall and City Field. And I went with my friend AJ to uh, the Fenway show. And I also went by myself to a show in Virginia which was a weird experience. I realized I've long loved to go to the movies by myself. I have no issue with that whatsoever, but I've never gone to a concert by myself. Maybe one other time. In New Haven in the 80s, I remember seeing Taj Mahal at a small theater in New Haven and I was so blown away that I drove the next night to like Worcester or something to see the show again. That's maybe the only time I can remember going by myself. Uh, but it was really cool and interesting and weird to go to an experience like this by yourself, because of course you're not by yourself, you're with this community and you're all there together for the same reasons. And so you have a shared experience with people you don't know. And a few words is all it takes to start trading stories and experiences and sort of being communally together to watch this music played as we know it will be played at this incredibly high level for the last time as this iteration. And so, but I also realized going live is different for me. Like what I, when I really want to listen to the music, I listen on my headphones and I watch the live stream because I can see the interplay of the musicians. When I'm watching that way and listening that way, I'm actively listening in a way that I am actively listening at a concert, but it's just different. There's so much stimulation going on around you. It's hard to focus in all the time. And this conversation started where I was talking with my friends. I was talking with AJ, particularly at uh, Fenway, about this concept of passive listening versus active listening. And what do people do? What do you do when you listen to music? You know, for me, I think listening to music probably started fairly passively in the sense of high school, you're stoned and you put on Dark Side of the Moon and you trip out to it. But gradually you realize you're listening at a pretty deep level. And, you know, going all the way back to people playing uh, Beatles albums backwards, looking for secret messages. I mean, that's active listening. That's listening. <laughs> that may be crazy, but it's active listening. You know, again, why were we listening for stuff like that on Beatles records? Because we wanted information we couldn't get. And we were so willing to find it that we became convinced that Paul was dead or other such stuff. So I was thinking a lot about active listening versus passive listening. And it was AJ who said, you know, people who appreciate jazz music are probably more aware already of kind of how to listen to music like Grateful Dead or Dead and Company because 
they're used to active listening in a live concert environment, certainly. But also with jazz music, what you're listening to is the interplay of the musicians with each other. And you're listening to essentially uh, verses and choruses, even if they don't have words, and then long improvisatory soloing sequences. So the song structure of the way jazz music can be performed at times is very similar to what we're talking about with Grateful Dead. And so that's what I kind of started tripping out on and thinking a lot about as I attended these concerts and watched this final tour. And as this sense of finality kind of crept into the last few weeks, because the last three shows are taking place this week in San Francisco. They're finishing this iteration of the band off in the historic birthplace of the Grateful Dead. And the playing has just been rising and rising and rising and having these insane moments. Um, Dave Matthews came on stage and played an incredible version of Dylan's All Along the Watchtower with the band uh, at a recent show. And it was just, wow. It was something was happening there. Something special was happening on stage. If you were there, you won't forget it. And moments like that, you know, music brings us together. And I guess living in a time like we are where there's just such division, it's profound to be at an event, be it a memorial service or a concert where this shared collective sense of community is something that we as human beings require. It's not a luxury. It can be with the prices to attend concerts these days. I get that. But wow, the more we come together and experience things like this, it just, it takes place on a cellular level. And I was also intrigued by this concept that the members of Dead & Company have talked about which is um, how often has a band broken up after the fact and we didn't know that the last time we saw them was going to be the last time we saw them, right? Or as is the case of the Grateful Dead, a member dies and you weren't aware, they weren't aware that that was their last show. Well, there is something to this idea, which of course no one likes now that we're in the midst of the most amazing Dead & Company tour, the idea that it's going to be over is harder to swallow. But there's a poignancy and a truth and an amazingness to that decision. And, and John Mayer gave great voice to that in one of these interviews. What they do is on the Nugs shows, they have a, a set break show and there's two, two guys who are longtime Grateful Dead historians. And they often interview people. Sometimes they interview members of the band and they have conversations and they've had conversations with all of the, all of the members of, of dead and company over the years. And, and in this little snippet, I'll say about finality and closure and doing a last tour, you know, John Mayer's and talking perhaps about. if it's done correctly, it doesn't feel like it winded down. You know, I, I don't know if that's what you, I don't know that anybody wants a soft landing. Well, just when I stopped caring, it was over. <laughs> no one wants to do that. I think if it's done in my mind, and I know everyone has a different take on this in the band, I'm sure. In my mind, it's done correctly if everyone says that 
should keep going because the music is so good. And that to me is a fine place to park it, I think, because only because the alternative is that you make people go, yeah, it's about right. And no, we don't want to do that. I don't want to be involved in something that makes people go, oh, good time ended. Well, <laughs> totally, totally figured out what I'd not want anymore. I would like <laughs> to play so well that, that it's just a blitz of emotions, you know, of bittersweet and incredible and sad. I mean, and, and, and the, th the, the reason I say that is because I want us to be in control of that. I want there to be a graceful ending, not an ending that you have to look back and go, oh, I guess that was the end. I think there's something deep about, I don't know, having something to do with giving the that world of Grateful Dead music the opportunity to say, ta-da, you know? I, I don't know, at least in my interpretation of the overall story, it would, I, I would, as Bob said one time about Trey, his playing uh, the Fairly Well show was the jewel in his heavenly crown, he said, which I thought was really sweet. And the jewel in my heavenly crown to me would be giving this ride a ta-da, a, a fiend, a, you know, a, a, a real moment of, real time, everyone in the same moment, reading from the same page, experiencing an end that everyone can be involved in. I mean, I can't say any better than that. That is perfectly what is going on. That's exactly what happened. And he said that in May 19th. And here we are uh, mid-July and there's, you know, three shows left. Uh, but that is what happened. That's exactly what happened. And he's so right that you never get that with your favorite bands to the extent that people have bands anymore. Because, God, it also occurs to me, you know, bands are are few and far between anymore. Um, so I thought that was a really important uh, moment. He, he mentioned this, too. I want to um, you know, and I, and I feel like everyone right now is at the peak of understanding one another musically. Um I finally feel like I have some tenure and I can make more notes than I could have in the past. And I can go, <laughs> you know, and that's great. I, I, I'm a little less scared of someone being mad at me. It's, you know, eight years into being in a band, you know, you can, you can, um, I can assert myself a little more and that's really nice. I can have a thought and go, what if we did the X, Y, and Z and it's nice when it works, you know? Um, so, you know, I mean, look, think of the rhythm of this conversation. This is a different rhythm than we've ever had in a conversation, just because there is so much uh, uh, sort of submerged and exposed emotion having to do with this being the final run. You know, it's deep, really deep. It is really deep. I'm here for it, John. And where it's deepest is in the music itself, you know, which is as it should be. And... I wanted to just wrap this up a little bit. I don't know if this is going to work, but what I'm fascinated by is this type of active listening and I guess uniquely among a lot of acts, you know, for deadheads, it's not about the albums like it is for every other band, you know, 
for deadheads, like we might put on an actual album from time to time. Maybe we put on American beauty. Uh, we certainly put on the live albums that they've released like dead set or Europe 72 or, uh, or their first album, I think was a live album. So we put on some of that stuff, but for example, I wanted to use a song that kind of encapsulated what I've been talking about. And I wanted to pick something that maybe would appeal to the non-deadheads out there who might still be listening one hour and 12 minutes in. There might be very few of you, but um, it's summer. I wanted something breezy and fun and maybe, yeah, a little yacht rocky. And then uh, I love Eyes of the World. It's a it's a Garcia Hunter song. It's currently being performed uh, with Bob Weir singing the lead vocal, which is poignant because when Bob takes the vocal, it reminds you that Jerry's not there and that he once was. But the way Bob owns the songs now has its own poignancy, its own weight. And he is such a sage, his presence, his beard, his white hair, his sinewy arms. He has it. He's got this, he's this this force on stage now because he's earned it. It's 60 years in for him. You know, when he joined the Grateful Dead, he was like an 18-year-old kid. You know, he was the kid for 40 years in the band. It's like the Stones will joke that um, uh, Ronnie Wood is the new guy and he's been in the Stones for 40 years, but he's still the new guy. Like, I think there's some truth to that in, in Weir's experience in The Grateful Dead, where he was always the kid even after tenure. So anyway, there's a thing with Bob singing now where it approaches a Dylan level of sageness when he does a ballad like Standing on the Moon, which is another brilliant Garcia Hunter later composition, he's performing it and it's it means so much because he embodies 60 years of this history and it's inescapable from his performance. And you can only get that by going and seeing someone like that. And there aren't that many of them walking around on the face of the earth. It's like seven footers in the NBA. I mean, there just aren't that many of them. So anyway, while we don't listen to the albums, I wanted to use Eyes of the World because I think it's become the vehicle by which Dead & Company best explores themselves as musicians. It's taken on a shape where it features at least three solo sections so that John Mayer has an extended guitar solo, Jeff Kimenti has an extended keyboard solo, and Oteil Burbridge will have an extended bass solo. And sometimes Bob himself has sort of a slide guitar rhythm solo. And that's part of the listening that I wanted to talk about a little bit here with how I listen to this music. So I played the album cut for myself, which I don't think I've ever really listened to uh, because you wouldn't as a deadhead. You'd listen to any of the superlative live versions of Eyes of the World, but this is the album cut. And you'll see it starts with this great Yacht Rocky vibe, right? Now, if you're a deadhead, you're probably laughing because Jerry's vocal is a little um, studio, like he doesn't really sing like that live, so it's kind of funny, but but let's listen to the individual instruments here. If you're listening on headphones, 
in your right ear, you'll hear Bob's rhythm guitar. And you'll hear Jerry kind of in the middle, soloing. Pick out the bass line for yourself. keyboard that Wurlitzer keyboard and now we're about to go into the first improvisational section now here my ear of course goes to Jerry soloing on the guitar but also to Phil's bass playing listen to that bass line I find following that helps me follow the solo Okay, now we're back into the verse. But even on this, I can actively listen and I can separate the instruments and I can follow what they're doing. And you can start to understand how the song is constructed. chorus here and so these are the you know these are the origins these are the songs right and what it doesn't have in the album the studio version is it doesn't have you know an 11 minute guitar solo section or a 12 minute bass solo section these are this is the song in its verse chorus solo construct and it allows us to identify the parts of the song and the instrumentation. It goes again to this little improvisational section here. get a little taste of what it is that we like about those improvisational sections from from listening to that bit um now i've got to find this other let me find this version that i was going to play as well okay so i mentioned before i didn't want to just rip uh the nugs broadcast audio uh which i could do technically but I'm using something you can watch on YouTube and listen to. And that was important to me in selecting a version of Eyes of the World. I put it out there on a couple of Grateful Dead fan sites, like what's the best Eyes of the World played during the summer tour? And I got basically three responses, Barton Hall, which I was at, Atlanta, and what was the third one? Barton Hall, Atlanta, and hmm, there was another one and I'm forgetting what it was. Um, it isn't this one. <laughs> Let me put it to you that way. Although this one just happened earlier in the week. This happened on July 1st. And when I was putting that question out, I then saw this version and I thought, whoa, we have a new candidate here. Um, 
but it was important to me that I play something here that you can play. So this is available. It's Dead & Company Live, 7123 Boulder, Colorado, set to preview. You can see this on the Dead & Company YouTube channel. And this is what Nugs puts out as a teaser to induce you to listen, or to rather to pay to get the rest of the show. So coming out of the set break, you'll hear the start of the song here. This is John Mayer playing this signature riff. hear the different instruments and who's playing what. You can hear Jeff there on the keyboards. You can hear O'Teal's bass. Jay Lane and Mickey Hart laying down the drums. to the first verse here, what I wanted to point out is when you're actively listening here and you're kind of listening to O'Teal's incredible bass playing and Cimenti's piano and Bob's rhythm guitar, those are the building blocks. You know, you have the drums and, and the bass, that's the foundation, but really it's O'Teal, Bobby on rhythm guitar and Jeff playing keyboards, which are the, the rhythmic backbone of the song on top of which John Mayer is playing these guitar filigrees and the recognizable riff and as it takes off into this first solo section after the chorus you know I want you to listen that way listen to try to pick out the keyboard the bass and Bobby's rhythm guitar if you can They'll be located in different places on your head if you're wearing headphones. And what I do when I'm actively listening is I, I jump around. You know, it's easy to listen to the solo, but I'm often fascinated by what's going on behind the solo. And I'm particularly fascinated by what John Mayer plays when Jeff solos. But here's the first guitar solo.
Okay, so what's incredible there is you can hear John Mayer playing some riffs and runs on the guitar, and then Jeff is picking them up on the keyboard, and O'Teal is picking it up on the bass. You know, again, there, that mirroring, that that listening. They're listening to each other in such a close fashion. And now it's funny right here. Uh, I believe that the members were kind of going to this part where the solo traditionally ends, where they all go, dun, 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 dun. But Mayer's kind of still cooking, and they just immediately shift gears, and they just keep going, because he's going somewhere, and they're following him. fascinated by also like as you move up the fretboard on the guitar the notes get higher as jay lane the drummer starts hitting the bell of the ride cymbal it it adds a ringing kind of urgency to things that's how these things build it's the building of emotion and then there's a release and then it kind of calms down again as it gets back into the verse and the chorus but man they're cooking right here listen to this And so, you know, when you're present and you're listening to something like this live, it's the emotion of it that you're plugging into. And that's why when this solo ends, you'll hear the entire crowd go nuts. This is the ending thing that they were hinting before. And you'll, you'll hear when Bob sings the next verse, how everyone just gives Mayer a rousing ovation, deservedly so, for that incredible piece of... Comes a redeemer. Because they know. They know what they just heard was something truly incredible. And, you know, oftentimes this summer, it's been these incredible solos from from John Mayer and from Jeff Kimenti on keyboards, particularly, that are the fireworks. But what I love is... When Kimenti is soloing, um, 
John Mayer is just kind of comping these chords, just playing these chords behind Kiminti's solo. And I love listening to that because it's not kind of like what he's known for within the band, which are these guitar pyrotechnics, but it's such an essential part. To me, it's like, it's the equivalent of an actor who isn't going to be on camera and knows that, but shows up anyway to be uh, to read their part of the dialogue off camera for their partner in a scene, right? John Mayer's giving as much to Jeff Kimenti as Kimenti is giving to him during his solo. And he's giving it to him by being behind him and uh, supporting his solo so that it can go the places that it needs to go. And that's being a bandmate. That's being a band member. That's being a musical friend. Jeff also takes it to some weird places. He goes some atonal, discordant places at times, which I love. Listen to that rhythm section, man, too. It's just so tight. There you can hear Bobby on rhythm. What's also cool is when you're listening, you realize that like the guitars are sort of have different tones. You know, Bobby's occupying some space around the back, between the backbeat and the downbeat, if that makes sense, if you're a drummer. Um, Sometimes when we sort of play guitar, we're playing the rhythm kind of where the snare drum would hit. But Bobby's kind of occupying some other space there, which fills in the sound because O'Teal is playing the bass line and the drummers are playing the downbeat and the backbeat. And it's really Jeff Kimenti and Bob Weir who are filling in different sonic spaces in the music. And that's what I like about active listening is kind of picking that stuff apart and following it. And it's always different and it doesn't always work. And that's part of the attraction here. And so I wanted to do this episode because I've been fortunate enough to participate in four of these shows this summer, and I will certainly be watching all of the final three shows. Maybe there's a surprise musical guest uh, like they had with Dave Matthews coming out the final night in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I don't know, but I do know that this ability to have closure, to have finality around something that doesn't typically have it has been an amazing thing. It's exactly what John Mayer said he hoped it would be. And it's rare that we get to participate in something like that collectively. And so if you are interested at all in the music or I've piqued your interest, you can find this stuff pretty easily online. You'll be able to listen for free a little bit at the top of each set. And if you're really curious, you might want to avail yourself of one of the Nugs broadcasts and catch it. Certainly catch the last show if you're only going to catch one, because who knows what will happen. But I know that something will happen after this. I think that some iteration of these people will continue to play music together. The final tour may mean, as it does for so many acts, that there are opportunities for residencies or longer runs at single venues that maybe present opportunities. We don't know. We'll see what iteration of the music continues. But I know that the music will continue in one form or another. 
as will the Full Casting Crew podcast. Thank you for indulging me on this episode.